could see already the uh, investment was well worth it, I think. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Thanks for that update. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Acts chapter 2. We are coming to the end of a series that we've been in for some time on walking by the Spirit. This isn't the very last message, but it's maybe the unofficial last message because it's somewhat of a summary of everything that we've walked through uh, since earlier in the year. We're going to read about the day of Pentecost, which is the single most important event related to the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So we can't very well have a series on walking by the Spirit without addressing it, so we will. So the focus of our morning is going to be on the beginning of Peter's sermon in verses 17 to 21, but we're going to read starting in verse 1 so that we understand the context of it, and then we'll pray. So let's read Acts 2, 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we wade into deep waters here, mighty things, enormous realities, things that from before the foundation of the world you planned things that will come to their appointed end. And you've put us in the stream of history at this particular place and time to be a part of the great work that you're doing. So give us an eye to see it again this morning and and encouragement for our part in what you have decided to do, what you are going to be glorified in, what the church is going to rejoice in with you. Lord, give us uh, eyes to see our part in that and encouragement through the scriptures today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The witnesses of the events at Pentecost asked a good question. 
that we're going to answer this morning. They said, what does this mean? This mighty rushing wind, these flames that are appearing, this unexpected ability to speak in languages that they never knew, all the, lang- all the native languages of the people here. What does all of this mean? So for us, the question is, what does Pentecost mean for us today, 2,000 years later? Is this just an interesting event in church history that now bears no importance to us? Or is it something more? What we're going to do is explore the answer. We're going to break it up into four questions that will form our outline. So let's ask a first question here. What did God do on the day of Pentecost? What did he do on that day? Well, behind all the excitement that we just read about, the significance is this. God fulfilled a 500-year-old promise more than 500 years, but at least 500 years. That's in the period of the exile, a- after the exile of Israel, God told his people through the prophet Joel that he was going to do something. And it hadn't happened yet until that day. What, what was it that he said he would do? What was his promise to his people? Peter quoted it in verse 17. In the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That was the promise. To understand the significance of that promise, we need to know a little bit about the context in which that promise was made. Who was he saying that to when it was first written? Well, it was a time when the people of Israel were in severe hardship. There had been a severe drought so the, the land is parched and dry, cracking, you know, mud. Um, just, a, just a dry period of famine is on the land. And to make things worse, this enormous plague of locusts had descended on Israel like a big black cloud. Just descending on everything. Massive cloud of locusts eating up all their food supply. And so people were desperate. They're wondering, where is God in all this? Why doesn't he do something about this? They're they're desperate. And Joel says to them, before what we just read, um, that God is going to reverse things. God is going to bring back the rains. He is going to remove this black cloud of locusts from the land, so things are going to get better. But then he added something that was going to be farther out in the future. I will pour out my spirit in the last days on all flesh. In other words, a time is coming where I'm going to give to this devastated, thirsty land a different kind of rain. It's going to drench my people like a heavy shower. And it's going to bring a thousand times better blessing than the physical rain because I'm going to pour out myself upon my people. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Male and female. Young or old, servants or masters, everybody who is thirsty for me, I will pour out my spirit. Pentecost is the day that promise was fulfilled. It was awaiting the coming of Jesus. Because God cannot dwell so intimately with sinful man such as we are. First, he had to remove the offense of our sins in order to be so intimate with us. And that's what the cross was for. According to Peter, who would write later, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or we might say it in reverse, it was that he might bring God to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. 
filling us, drenching us. And so it happened on Pentecost. God poured out his spirit like rain to fill his people in a way that was never possible before. And as Peter would say later in his message that day, this wasn't just for those disciples at that time, but it was for all generations of disciples. Because in verse 39, he said, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, today in Pentecost is the beginning of this outpouring of the Spirit, but it doesn't end here. This is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself from every generation. This promise of God coming in power, filling his people, is for you. It's for us. Now, why did he do that? Why, why this promise? Why does God need to dwell with us in that way? That's the second question. Why did God do this? Why did he send this spiritual rain? Here's the short answer. It was to save people from the judgment that is to come on the whole world. It was to save people from the judgment that is to come on the whole world. You see, the promise didn't end with the pouring out of the Spirit. Joel had more to say than that. God had more to say than that. He said it in verse 19 and 20, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. The original hearers would have understood what that imagery meant. They had just experienced this black cloud of locusts that had for a time blocked out the sun. They understood that darkness is foreboding. It's a, a description of things to come that are not good. And so the idea of the sun turning to darkness and even the moon to blood means that something very serious, more serious even than this plague of locusts, is out there in the future somewhere. The things that we count on to be stable, the, the sun with its light and the moon even with its uh, anticipated light coming at certain times of the day, things that we just take for granted, that's stability, that's what I can count on. And in this prophecy, God is saying, that's not going to be reliable anymore. Nothing that you think is stable will be stable anymore. A day is coming when the earth is going to be so transformed, so affected, that nothing is going to be a place of safe ground. A disaster is coming that's going to totally disrupt the course of normal life. It's described in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. You'll see the same language here. When the Lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is the day of the Lord that Joel is speaking of, that Peter is now saying to the people, this day is coming. He calls it in Revelation, the wrath, the day of the wrath of the Lamb. We tend to think of wrath as God 
Father, God of the Old Testament. This is the wrath of the Lamb. This is the wrath of Jesus. This is the day when God is going to settle all accounts, when he's going to arrive like a thief in the night to render judgment on all human beings for their sins. This is the day that the world ends. The day of Pentecost was not that day, but the outpouring of the Spirit was the sign that that great and magnificent day was coming. Just as the first part of the promise is happening now, the second part will also happen. The judgment. And in that judgment, who can stand? Because all are guilty of sin. We all deserve God's punishment. No one can stand in that day except one kind of person. Verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus as Savior will be saved from that day. Sins forgiven, pardon extended, welcome into eternal life by God, into a new heaven and a new earth. All those who call upon the name of the Lord, for them, that day is not a day to be feared. That is a day to look forward to. That's the doorway into real life. So what's the connection between this day of judgment and the outpouring of the Spirit? It's just this, that God has sent His Spirit on the church so that people may call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's to be the instruments, the Spirit-empowered instruments of God to call people to Jesus, that they may be saved. God is intending to and will have a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They will be there in the final Reckoning they will be rescued out of, the, out of the flames. And he's giving his spirit to the church to bring that people in. That's ultimately what Pentecost was about. Joel says that such people who are recipients of the spirit shall prophesy. They shall see visions and dream dreams. In other words, they'll have new sights of God and a new voice for God. They'll, God will show himself to them, and they will speak to others on God's behalf. The Spirit-empowered church is the means by how people are going to call upon the name of the Lord and escape the judgment of that great day. Let me stop there and reflect on this for a bit. Because these are weighty matters that we're talking about here. In our current day, the idea of a final judgment and a cataclysmic destruction of the world as we know it can seem just like something from a movie. There are lots of movies about the end of the world. <laughs> Either of superheroes rescuing us from the end of the world or the dystopian futures where it's happened and people are just trying to, to get along. But they're just movies. They're just entertainment. You leave the movie theater and then you enter real life again. And you know it's not real, what you just watched. So when we hear about this day of the wrath of the Lamb, it can seem like nothing more than a movie script that isn't real. You read about it in the Bible, you hear about it on a Sunday morning, but then you close the Bible, you go back home, and then real life comes back. This won't really happen, right? But friends, just as surely as God fulfilled his first promise to pour out the Spirit, he is going to fulfill the second one to pour out his wrath on everyone who does not call on the name of the Lord. And he has to, because he is a just judge. 
He cannot let crimes go unpunished. There has to be a reckoning for everyone who has ever lived, for God is the judge of the living and of the dead. So those crimes are either punished in us as unforgiven sin, or they are punished in Jesus as the one who bore that sin for us. But they will be punished. That's sobering. It could be depressing, except for one thing. The Spirit has been poured out on people so that they can be saved from them. The Spirit's been given to the church. Believers in Jesus stand. We stand under this heavy rain of God's grace and mercy. We who trust in Christ will survive that day, and we've been empowered to help others survive that day. That means you and I, who are believers in Christ, we're part of the most meaningful, most worthwhile, most significant cause that there can be in human endeavors. There isn't anything more privileged, more to be uh, esteemed, more to look back on your life about and say, that was a life well lived, than to give your life to this, to rescuing people from that day. I saw a pair of pictures on a Facebook post by Mary's sister, uh, who is who lives in Milwaukee, and her husband, Tom, is a firefighter. Uh, Tom just retired after 29 years as a firefighter, and, the, and this pair of pictures was very moving. The first picture was of him standing in front of a house that he had just saved from a fire. You could still see the black marks on it. He was young. The second picture was from today. He's got gray hair. He's looking at the same house. The house has been restored. It's beautiful. People live in it. And I thought, what a great picture of a guy who's given 29 years of his life to saving people from fire, saving their property from fire. And we, we know instinctively that's a noble thing. That's a worthy way to live your life, right? Because there's something instinctive within us that says to rescue people, to help people is a good thing. How much more noble is it to rescue people from the fires of God's justifiable wrath? To rescue them eternally. We know, we've been taught well, that we don't actually do the rescuing. God is the one who does it. Yet Paul was able to say that I might save some. There, God is using people to do that. How noble is it to be invested in this cause? that has such eternal ramifications. We are instruments of God's rescue to a dying world that needs Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us for that cause. That's the whole reason we've had this series. It wasn't just to make our meetings more interesting. <laughs> As we earnestly desire prophecy or tongues or healing or authority to cast out demons, it was to position ourselves. It was to receive all that we need from the Spirit to be involved in this great cause, this noble undertaking, to do God's will and to know ourselves to be in the center of God's will, <clears throat> to be a part of something great. We need to be filled with the Spirit in order to do this. We don't have what it takes to pull off that mission in ourselves. Personally, I came to this church ten and a half years ago, roughly, with a whole lot of self-confidence, a whole lot of holy-looking self-dependence. I thought, as long as I teach the scriptures and as long as I train leaders, God is going to grow this church. Before long, we're going to be looking for bigger buildings. We're going to have all these new people, all these converts, and it's going to be amazing. The Lord has humbled me. And that's not to say that there isn't growth here. But I had a picture in my mind. And I'm thinking, I can do that. 
I can make that happen. And he said, no, you can't. Because as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the original spark for this sermon series was my own realization that a person can plant and another person can water, but only God can cause the growth. A person can build, but they labor in vain who build it unless God builds the house. But here's the good news. The Lord is a builder of houses. <laughs> the Lord's a builder of his church. The Lord causes growth. The Spirit is life to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And the Spirit was poured out 2,000 years ago, but he's being poured out in every generation of believers. But we must obey Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. That is a command to obey. That is something for us to do. We are indwelt. But God wants us to seek power. Seek more. Seek to be filled. Seek to operate in this dependence and expectation that God is with us and that he gives us what we need to do the impossible. And there's a lot of things that feel impossible. I don't know if I can hand somebody one of those invite cards to December 23rd. I'm too nervous about that. Now the Holy Spirit gives us power. We need to seek him. It's true, we can't force God's hand to to bestow a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in a remarkable revival like happened on Pentecost. 3,000 people were baptized that day. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen every day. We can't force God's hand to do that. But we live in an age where the Spirit has been poured out. He does dwell in every believer so we can live in hope of God granting revival at any time. He can revive a person or a church or even an entire community, because he did then, and that's part of the promise. He can do that, and he will do that. I think we need to see what it could look like if he does that. I think we need some inspiration about what the Lord can do through the church in the world, through obedient Christians living in a manner worthy of the gospel. For, so for that, we're going to answer a third question. What is possible now that we have the Spirit? What is possible? So for that, we're going to look to Acts chapter 19. You may want to turn to that chapter because we're going to look at several things described there. Acts 19 is the description of how the church in Ephesus was planted. It was Paul's third missionary journey, covers a period of about two to three years of ministry. And everything that we're about to read here in Acts 19, it, it happened about 20 years later, 20 years after Pentecost. Paul wasn't even there. He wasn't even a part of Pentecost and while, uh, wasn't even a believer when that happened. But God gets a hold of him. God makes him an apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes out on, this will be his third trip, and he stops in Ephesus for a good long while. So the initial outpouring of the Spirit is over. But what still happens after that? Let's see what happens. I'm going to comment on several points in the story to show you what the Spirit did through Paul. And I know that you might be thinking, well, he was an apostle. He was commissioned by the Lord himself. He's on a different category. So, of course, those kinds of things happen to Paul. But you remember that Paul said, I am the least of all the saints. I'm a normal guy. <laughs> I have the same issues you have. <laughs> it's just that God gave me a specific ministry. But the Spirit is the one doing this stuff. So don't just write it off as, as unique. This is what God can do by the Spirit. So let's walk through Acts 19 and, and see what's possible post-Pentecost. Verses 1 and 2 says this. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Notice how this account of the 
church planting in Ephesus, how it begins. It begins with this concern about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people who appear to be disciples. Paul's question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He wants to know. This is very important. You, you, you seem to be disciples, but what kind of disciples are you? Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not genuine disciples. And it turns out they didn't know anything about the Spirit. They didn't know a whole lot about Jesus either. So Paul preaches the gospel to them. They believe they are baptized. But, but notice the importance that Paul places on the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. You need him. He's not only interested in what did you believe, though that's important, but did you receive the Holy Spirit? There's just not going to be anything happening without Him. You aren't a Christian without the Spirit, and you can't do the Christian life without the Spirit. So let's get that settled. <laughs> Paul himself was dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and he was eager that others should share that experience. Now, there are 12 of these men that he spoke to, and here's what happened next, verse 6. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. The immediate, they immediately began speaking to God in prayer languages that they had never learned and probably didn't understand. They began speaking to one another in words that God gave them for or about other people. They were prophesying. So tongues and prophecy, gifts of the Spirit that we've talked about in this series. I hope having gone through this series on walking by the Spirit that this is something that you believe is not only possible, but something that we should earnestly desire. <laughs> because we're commanded to in 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And why not do this? Because it's totally consistent with Acts chapter 2 and the prophecy of Joel. They spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This is totally expected in the, in the course of the book of Acts. Sure, Acts 2 and Acts 19. Yeah, there's, there's consistency there. More than that, it's consistent with the mission of, of having people call on the name of the Lord and being saved. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What's one of the reasons for prophecy? Is it not that people might fall on their face and worship God? This is consistent with the mission. In Ephesus, as in Corinth, as in Jerusalem, as in Aurora, Colorado, and everywhere in the world where people call on the name of the Lord, God gives spiritual gifts to the people to forward his mission, to rescue people from that day. Let's move on in the story. Come to verses 8 to 10. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, you've got to remember that Ephesus was a very pagan city. It had an entire industry around the worship of Diana, the Greek goddess of fertility. This wasn't a place where you'd expect people to be receptive to the message that Jesus is the one true Lord and that gods made with hands are no gods, gods like Diana. You wouldn't expect that this is a place where you could get a hearing for that message or be allowed to say that very long. And it says here Paul had two whole years in a rented hall downtown, freely speaking about this, to the effect that you could scarcely find anybody after two years who hadn't heard about Jesus. 
take courage, friends. When you think about our city and our country, does it seem to you like a place where nobody is interested in hearing about Jesus? Where people speak evil of the way, as they did to Paul? Where people are preoccupied with gods of their own making, money, sex, power? That's not new. And that's not a problem for the Holy Spirit. If he wants to fill this city with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, he will. And he can. Man is no match for God. Don't think that can't happen in Aurora, but happened in Ephesus, which started out, by the way, with virtually no Christian witness at all. I've been encouraged by, in the recent weeks by reports of different people in conversation about how people in this church are bringing this gospel to our community. So one sister said, this Muslim boy came up to me and said, hey, what's your faith? <laughs> and she said what her faith was. Got to share the gospel with this boy. Another brother was having a conversation with uh, an atheist co-worker who started out very antagonistic to what he was saying. And by the end of their conversation was telling him all of his problems all of his life issues. We've got two families going back to visit people that we served in October for yard work. One of those households has a, a, a woman who lives alone who's not a Christian, and she has warmly received them to come in. They're going on Tuesday. Prayer requests went out on that. The word is getting out. God can use us. God is using us. Why should the word of the Lord not go out from us as it did in Ephesus? Because that word is true, friends. <laughs> we're not selling, we're not peddling something, trying to collect a following. We're talking about true things. We're talking about realities that people don't see, but God has given us sight, and we know what the end is, what it looks like, and we know how to find eternal joy instead of eternal misery. We know what the truth is. And that truth is going to land on soil that's been prepared by God and will result in belief. We don't know who that is, but Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. So we have to think that way. Paul could have looked at Ephesus and said, wow, this is a spiritual wasteland. I better move on to someplace a little more friendly. Two years later, everybody in the whole place knows about Jesus. God can do that. He's done it before, and he will do it again. Let's move on to verses 11 to 12. What else is possible by the Spirit? It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. <clears throat> Again, I hope that you've seen in this series that miracles like this still happen today. This is part of what God gives to us, physical, miraculous healing and the authority to cast out evil demons. I don't know that the Lord is ever going to do the handkerchief or apron thing again. <laughs> Even in the category of miracles, there are miracles and then there are extraordinary miracles <laughs> like Touching a handkerchief that Paul had in his pocket and you get healed. I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. But miracles happen. The working of miracles is even a spiritual gift that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> we don't live in a world that's bound by just what man can do or what the laws of physics and science dictate. We live in a world that's governed by the or origin of science and physics, by the one who invented it and the one who can override it at any time. We live in a world where Jesus and even Peter have walked on water, contrary to physics. We live in a world where Jesus raised people from the dead and raised himself from the dead, contrary to everything we know about the process of life and death. 
The Lord will do miraculous whenever it suits his pleasure to advance his kingdom and gather his people. Let's skip to verses 17 to 20. And this is something that should really encourage us about what the Spirit can do in our day. The context of those verses is that some Jewish exorcists, some seven sons of Sceva, tried to cast out demons by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Not being believers, of course, this did not work because they were not united to Christ and had no authority over those demons. And so they try it, and it doesn't work. It backfires on them. The, the evil spirit, um, it says, um, overpowered them all and sent them out naked and wounded. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And then we read verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is what we might put in the category of revival. Not only do you have the name of the Lord Jesus being extolled, among the non-believers, but you have believers who are being transformed in their lives. They used to be deep into the magic arts, it says, which is probably equivalent to today's occult practices. They were far away from Jesus at one time, but now, not only have they put their trust in the Lord, but they're being convicted about their pagan practices that they still have these expensive books. They invested a whole lot of money into magic arts, thinking that that's going to give me life. And now they're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm done with that. And I don't care how much money I wasted or what I could get for these books, I'm going to burn them. <laughs> that's transformation. That's a new life. That's breaking free from long-standing patterns of sin. And in the church of Ephesus, that was happening. This is revival. This is what the Spirit did then. This is what He can do today. You know, we think sometimes that personal transformation, breaking free from sin, is always, always a long, slow, gradual process. And to be sure, frequently, that's what it is. The Lord doesn't generally sanctify us all at once because the, actually the struggle against sin is part of how he shapes us into the image of Christ. It forces us to believe truth, to trust promises, to, to get others involved in our lives for accountability, to pray, pray, pray. The struggle itself is part of God's way of changing us. So he doesn't want to just break you free of everything right now. Because there's purpose in that struggle. But sometimes it can happen like that. Not everything needs to be that way. Sometimes it's like a miraculous healing. <laughs> where deeply entrenched sinful habits, even ones you've, in, you've invested serious time and money into, they can be gone in days or even hours, not just to one person, but to many people. In Ephesus, that happened. Shall we not expect the Lord could do that today? Shall we not believe that revival is possible? Let's fast forward to modern times now. I want to read to you a couple of examples where that very thing has happened. I want to read to you what Isaac Watts wrote about the Great Awakening that happened in New England in the 1700s. He lived in the 1700s. He wrote one of the songs we sang this morning, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Here was his observation of what he saw. There is a spot of ground, as we are here informed, wherein there are 12 or 14 towns and villages, chiefly situate in New Hampshire, near the banks of the River of Connecticut, within the compass of 30 miles, wherein it pleased God two years ago to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time. 
turning them from formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. So 12 to 14 towns, and you can't walk down the street without meeting people that have just been converted. Now that's 250 years ago. Let's listen to a couple more, another, uh, a more current example. Um, I'm a little, I didn't grow up until a little bit past this, but in the early 60s uh, to the 70s, there was a wave of spiritual renewal across this country and in others. Actually, it was in, it was in England, too. Um, this a new movement of the Spirit. It was across denominations. Here's an account from one pastor during that time. It was, he was actually an Episcopalian minister whose church had a remarkable encounter with the Holy Spirit. He said, although our church membership did not increase with great rapidity, our church attendance did because people who had been casual members coming to church occasionally when they felt like it, now were in church more than once on a Sunday, often two, three, and four times. What caused the change? Why did they come to church more than once on a Sunday and also pray together two or three times during the week? Not from a sense of duty, nor to show off devotion, but simply because they could not get enough of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, personal, church, or even broadly geographic transformation can happen in a short time if God chooses to pour out His Spirit in a fresh way. So can many other things. As we've seen, we live in an age when the Spirit has been poured out on the church by the risen Christ. We have everything that we need for this great and noble calling to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to call people to Jesus so that they can escape the day. Let me close with one last question. What then shall we do given these realities? I think there's three possible ways to apply this. There's more than that, but here's three that come to my mind. First of all, let's, let's pray for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Let's ask God for it. Isaiah 64, 1 and 2 gives us some language for that. There it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. That's an appeal for God to make himself known in such a striking way that he can't be ignored. It's an appeal for an Ephesians-like experience where Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, said, Ask me for that. Ask me to rend the heavens. Ask me to pour out, to drench my church with the Spirit so that His name will be made known. We can ask for that. That's, that's what we're attempting to do with our Friday night worship time. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we try, we, we, me and Spencer, we dialogue. You're like, let's, let's do this. Because we know it's not us. We need God. So, but we're going to get together. We're at least going to press in. We're at least going to ask for him to make himself known, for his presence to be discernibly among us for our own joy, and for him to be working out there. We're going to ask him. So... Come Friday night. Here's another thing we can do. Do the next thing in obedience to Jesus. <laughs> Just do the next thing that, that looks like God has put this before me. And trust that Jesus is leading us somewhere. That you may not have, and none of us has, the exact contribution that Paul had, but we do have one. Everyone has been given different gifts. Let us use them. You can do this in your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, wherever. 
just do the next thing that looks like obedience because Jesus is leading somewhere. We're on mission. All the stuff that happened in Acts 19 was to a person who was in motion, so to speak. <laughs> Not sitting around, you know, sitting on the edge of the city of Ephesus. Yeah, I wish God would do something here. Now he goes into Ephesus. <laughs> he goes into the synagogue. He goes downtown because that's what God's called him to do. So just do the next thing that God's called you to do. And ask him to help you, to empower you to get through that. And believe that's part of how he's going to call people to himself. The last thing, just remain hopeful. If you're getting too bummed out by reading Facebook and watching CNN or whatever, take a break. <laughs> All right? God has this world under his control. He's given you an amazing cause to be a part of. And his cause wins in the end. You're a part of that. If you've called on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's guaranteed. Nobody can take that from you. And he's empowered us to help other people to get there too. He promises. He keeps his promises. Let's pray. So here we are, Lord. We're weak. We are, you know, in ourselves not able to do anything that you've called us to do. But we thank you that you're so merciful. First of all, that you have called us to yourself, Lord, wakened us, given us life, future, and a hope. Thank you for that. It gets intimidating sometimes when we're trying to think about obeying you. It's hard. It goes against our flesh, our habits, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It gets hard sometimes. But, Lord, you've given us your spirit. You know what we need, and you've given us what we need. So help us to live in a life that's dependence, dependent on you. Fill us with your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.